Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. It's time for tricks and treats. It's time for little kids to dress up like Power Rangers and monsters and probably there's a few political figures their parents forced them to dress like uh, and go outside and get that candy. And so my question for you is when you were a kid and you were trick-or-treating, what was the candy that you were hoping was in your bag that you wouldn't normally eat? Now, I'm not talking like Kit Kats because Kit Kats everybody can grab from CVS and then go there. I'm talking about that special candy that always seems to just be in your bag on Halloween and then you never think about it again during the rest of the year? Uh, I think my answer is too obvious. It's candy corn. No, that's I not obvious. That's a really good answer. did to candy corn. And then I, I honestly do not think I could eat candy corn now. My sister is so obsessed with it. She thinks I'm still obsessed with it. She talks to me about buying it and I don't want to eat any of it. The interesting thing about candy corn is I feel like after uh, everything got pumpkinized courtesy of Starbucks – like you go to Trader Joe's now and, and basically one out of every three items is pumpkin something. I feel oh. like candy corn is the next uh, great uh, uh, frontier. Like I feel like there's a lot of candy corn flavored stuff now. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of candy corn to be quite candid with you. I'm not. You think uh, we're regressing to corn syrup? That's reverting to the mean. <laughs> it's possible. I I would say for me, it is either of what I would call the Romulus and Remus of uh, coconut candy bars the almond joy Ooh. and the mounds Ooh. never pick yeah. up the mounds in not in life if i'm getting if i'm getting a candy bar it was probably a butterfinger i was afraid don't lay a finger my butter, butterfinger kid and almond joy obviously no one wants that because it's not as good as a mounds if either of those are in my bag mostly in miniature form because nobody really had full candy bars where i grew up uh i'm very excited about it it's it's like a special day um, the one that I don't like, the one that would often uh, go in my bag, Smarties. Never a fan of Smarties. You know, the little, the little tube, uh, the little, the little wrapped up, uh, chalky, uh, sort of sour candy. Smarties aren't. Oh, aren't, I know. Yeah, not my deal, not my jam. But I, w- I would Smarties always get a, a ton of them on, th- on Halloween. So you go. So if you want to make me and Emily happy, if we ever do a live show, just oodles of candy corn and coconut based candy bars uh, for your two lovely hosts. All right. It's ESPN on Ice. Today's show is going to be great. We're going to talk about this Roman Yossi contract. We're going to talk about some award stuff. We're going to talk about the NHL and their nefarious scheme to create a women's league behind the scenes. And, of course, we're going to have Hockey Hall of Famer Timu Solani joining us, which is very exciting. All that and more on this edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. <laughs> it's ESPN on ice, the podcast for ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. Indeed you are. So, today, the big, we finally got some like actual hockey news to talk about other than like injuries and stuff. Uh, the Nashville Predators called a press conference earlier today. They were like, everybody be at the arena at like 1130 because we got a lot of things to talk about. Everybody's like, oh, uh, what could it be? Actually, no one said what could it be. Everybody knew immediately it was the Roman Yossi extension. Uh, eight years, the max, 9.059 for number 59 on the AAV for this contract, making Roman Yossi the, uh, the third highest paid defenseman via the cap, uh, heading into next season behind only Eric Carlson and Drew Doughty. Uh, he is 29 currently, will be turning 30 on uh, June 1st of next year. And so, Emily, 
What do we think of this contract? Firstly, I have to talk about this trend. This is the NHL trend, I feel, of the last 18 months. When you sign a new contract, it has to have some ode to your jersey number in it. And it's just ridiculous to me. It's too cutesy. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know if the players are leaving money on the table. I don't know if the team is. Like, besides it looking cute in a press release, what is the purpose? I will say this as well. Kind of a beat trend when you consider that Wayne Gretzky's numbers retired around the league and no one could take 99. Because 99 would be the number I would use if you're going to pull this contract <laughs> malarkey. That's for sure. <laughs> I digress. But uh, look, I think that Roman Yossi over the last couple of years has been one of the most consistent and best defensemen in the league. He's a guy that we should be talking about in Norris conversations probably over the next two to three years. That's what level he's at. The most shocking part about it to me is the no movement clause, mm-hmm. because that is something that David Poyle infamously does not give out. He and Picarene are the only guys on the roster who have it. And you mentioned his age. He's about to turn 30. So this brings him to what, 39 years old. We're at a time where, hey, the Blackhawks are playing the Predators tonight on Tuesday as we're recording this. And we're talking about 34-year-old Brent Seabrook halfway mm-hmm. through his contract with a new movement clause that is looking pretty bad and is getting scratched for the second straight day. And I don't think that Roman Yossi's on that same exact trajectory, but we just see why these things do become troublesome down the road. Right. And so Dowdy's contract was uh, 13.84% of the cap uh, when he signed it. Um, mm-hmm. trying to look, Eric Carlson's contract when he signed his this past summer accounted for 14.47% of the cap. And then Roman Yossi's uh, contract is 11.12% of the cap. So, Ooh, Greg, you crunching the sen- numbers. You get the sense that, well, it's all from cap friendly. Come on, what am I? I hated that. <laughs> I always, I always, I always, uh, this is how I passed math in high school. I went in the back of the book, copied down every uh, answer, every like odd numbered question had the answer, and then just mm-hmm. scribbled a bunch of nonsense on top of it and hoped that I was right. And if I was right, <laughs> Like, my goal was like a 75. Just get, get me through it. Did what I could. So. These get degrees. I get the feeling that this, this salary, this, this AAV for the contract probably settles in around this much. It's down from where, uh, the Romans camp was looking for. They wanted like 9.5. It probably settles in around here because, partially because of that trade protection. That's a, that's a hell of a caveat from Poyle, like you said. And, uh, and because of it, you know, this, this number on the open market is, is over 10, I think, for a defenseman of his, of his, of his ilk. Um, we've been talking a lot about Alex Petrangelo lately insofar as him being a UFA. And, you know, these kinds of guys don't become available. When you look at a team like, for example, like the Vegas Golden Knights, like we've talked about this before, the Vegas Golden Knights are loaded up front. They've got a goalie. They don't have a foundational defenseman on their blue line. They just don't. Mm-hmm. Roman Yossi's one, Alex Petrangelo's one. Both these guys could have been available next summer. Now one of them is off the market. And you got to pay for that. So, yes, the term is frightening. Because like you said, Brent Seabrook, cautionary tale, right? Absolutely frightening term on this. Um, I will note that according to Cap Friendly, the contract is structured with all a bunch of signing bonus money in the first four years. So all the way until 2024, when he'll be turning like what 34, right? So that's just a little note, a little caveat. No signing bonus money for the last four years, and uh, you know, just there are ways to get around these things. But for the moment, eight years, over nine million dollars for one of the best defensemen in the league, 
And the Predators, obviously, if you look at the ages on that roster, the next four years are very important. Okay, this is like conspiracy theory zone. So Uh-oh. I, I, I want you to be very excited that we're about to enter here. David Poyle, notoriously stingy, you know, early mm-hmm. in his career and makes some bold moves. He's 69 years old. He will be 70 <laughs> yeah. on Valentine's Day this uh-huh. year. Uh-huh. Do you think that maybe he's just lessening up uh, some of his restrictions when it comes to term and no movement clause because he realizes I'm probably not going to be GM when I'm 80? I think that is a – I think that's a valid point. I also think that there are some general managers who are maybe managing because they expect to be there for the next 10 years. And there are some general managers that are managing because they have been there since the inception of the franchise. And are looking to maybe strike while the iron is hot, strike while the iron is Matthew Shane, 28, Ryan Johansson, 27, Philip Forsberg, 25, Victor Arvidsson, 26, Ryan Ellis, 28, Roman Yossi, still south of, south of 30, Matthias Ekholm, south of 30, and one more year of Pekka Like, maybe that's how hot the iron is, <laughs> and you need to strike as much as you can at that moment. I completely agree with you. It's a, it's a short-term play for David Poyle. Uh, but why shouldn't it be? I mean, this is, this is a team that is primed to win within the next two to three years. And if they don't, then I don't know what the answer is. I will say this as well. Um, I know we are dealing with a very small sample size. How good is that Subban trade now look for the Predators? They didn't get anything back so for good. him, but they cleared out that salary. And now you got, you got basically Roman Yossi making uh, $59,000 more against the cap in the next two years than Subban would have been making for you. Right. And I know Matt Duchesne doesn't believe that it's a one for one and um, a, uh, that he was traded. Uh, he signed essentially because P.K. Subban was traded. But mm-hmm. there is a correlation, too, that this is a team that kind of struggled with scoring last year. And all of a sudden their offense looks fantastic mm-hmm. and they've got a number two center for the first time in a while. Mm-hmm. This is true. Now, mm-hmm. on the Roman Yossi beat, we published our first awards watch this week. I don't think it's, again, when we do this, it's kind of looking at it from the perspective of the voters. Who do we think the voters would choose at this point? It's not necessarily like what I think. It's kind of like what we think the voters might go for. John Carlson's point total is catnip. There's no way that he wouldn't win the Norris if the vote was held today. And it's not to say he's not a good, complete defenseman. It's just saying that 21 points in his first 13 games is, I mean, it's catnip. That said, go inside the numbers and you realize... He has been the second best defenseman in this league behind our friend with the Nashville Predators we were just talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to John Carlson last week now uh, for my column, and I asked him, you know, it probably feels weird for you. You're a defenseman who's been very good in this league for some time, and all of a sudden you've got eye-popping offensive numbers, and now everyone wants to talk about you for the Norris. Like, do you agree with that, disagree? And he's like, look, I understand that there's this debate. It's the debate that doesn't go away. Should it go to the best offensive defenseman? Should it go to the best defensive defenseman? But I think it should just go to the best defenseman. Like, who do you want in the entire league if you could pick one defenseman and put them against the best line? John Carlson is routinely going against top players on other teams, routinely putting up good defensive numbers, and has, for the beginning of the season, routinely put up, like, star offensive numbers, numbers that you would expect from the Connor McDavid's and Leon Dreisaitl's of the world. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, he is the defenseman right now in the league that I would want going up against anyone. In the last three years, Brent Burns has pretty much been considered to be the um, gold standard for offensive defensemen. I think Carlson was three points behind him in total in points. So it's amazing that it's taken this long for him to be mentioned in the same breath with the best defenseman in this league. But you, you figure that would have happened when they won the cup with him. But uh, 
you know, it takes a while for the people to get on the uptake. Other awards. So I say Connor for the heart as long as Edmonton's in the playoffs. What say you? Yeah, I think so too. And you brought up a great point in your piece this week that like Leon Dreisaitl could make just as big of a case, if not a bigger case. But as you said, we're thinking how voters think. And (laughs) Connor McDavid, when we talk about a majority of Canadian male white voters, is going to get their vote. (laughs) There it is. Not that weird German guy. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like I just picture Connor McDavid on a throne and it's just like scores of Canadian (laughs) hockey writers bringing him gifts like the Magi. You know, and, uh, and stay and in our country, stay in our country. <laughs> yeah. If he's got a chance to win any kind of hardware, they're going to give it to him. And, and, uh, and McDavid, I think, has a, a very strong case. Of course, David Pasternak is a name we should probably mention here as well. Uh, we all kind of are like, oh, yeah, amazing point total, but he's also on this amazing team. But like, go back to June when Nikita Kucherov had an amazing point total and happened to be on the best team in hockey and then won the Hart Trophy. So it, it can be possible, but. Anybody who works magic to get the Edmonton Oilers into the playoffs, I think, is probably going to have a more compelling case than anybody else. So I'd say Connor has the lead. And shout out to Jack Eichel, by the way, for also being in that same boat, maybe once again playing second fiddle. Um, the Norris, we said Carlson Yossi. I would say Crystal Tang would be the other one to think about. What say you about the Vezina? You have Pekka Rene, Marc-Andre Fleury, and Tuka Rask in my top three. Pekka's got the real gaudy numbers. I think Tuka's got some very good underlying numbers to kind of make his case as well. Yeah, the only reason that I'm hesitant on Tuca, and as avid listeners of the podcast, you guys know this, it's a workload issue. And as Bruce Cassidy told us last week on this very podcast, uh, it sounds like they are splitting the load because they looked at the staff and they looked at the data and they realized there's a certain amount of a sweet spot for Tuca to play. And it's not as much as we typically have seen from starters. So I think as long as Halak is getting, you know, as many starts as he has, I can't imagine Tuka winning this award, if even if he is sensational. Right now, the leader for me is Pekka, but Mark Andre Fleury keeps putting up a lot of wins, and, yeah, and, and he's kind of been overlooked be that, since he's gotten there. He could easily be that guy who like gets the Vezina based on like you're the MVP of your team kind of thing, like mm-hmm. like the de facto we can't give a pitcher the MVP, so we'll give him the Cy Young kind of move. Like, that's the sort right. of move here for the Vezina and Marc-Andre Fleury, where his numbers aren't... And there's a correlation, yeah. yeah, between what you said of them not having any real stud defensemen. It's just kind of by committee there, and he's the one that has to shoulder most of the workload. Completely. Flower. Uh, Call the trophy. I asked you, I asked you about, are you sick of the Western PA accent, by the way, after your visit to Penn State? No, in fact, I pulled it last night in my Q&A. There was a kid who asked me a question, and he's wearing a TJ Watt Pittsburgh jersey. He's asking me about <laughs> Phil Kessel, and I'm like, Yins no, you miss Phil Kessel. <laughs> Emily, Yins no. Um, <laughs> I asked you before we, we did this awards watch about the Calder, and, and you you put over your sweet boy Victor Olofsson pretty quickly as far as who you think should win. Uh, in, insofar as October performance. I would tend to agree. Like, I think for October, he's probably been the best only because of that goal total and stuff. He's totally fallen off since. And I imagine if we do this thing again next month, it's going to be the Kale McCarr show at the top of the Calder rankings. Yeah. You know, it's such a weird bias with these awards. It just never seems to go to defensemen. It's always the freaking offensive star. And as you mentioned in your column, awards voters love making history. And Victor Olsen, you know, has some stats and info notes that we can share around from the Elias Sports Bureau. So that's really exciting for a lot of folks. I do think that Kale McCarr is going to take the second half by storm just because he's poised for more sustainable success. But I wonder who this year's Mira Heiskanen is going to be. Like the guy who's great all year, we don't talk about it, and all of a sudden at the end of the year it feels like everyone's just playing catch-up on him. Mm. 
It could be Quinn Hughes, and, and what could be very interesting mm. is after we had the Miro versus Rasmus uh, Calder Trophy debate last year for for between those two debacle, you mean? Uh, what if we what if we split? What if we split Hughes and Makar, and Jack Hughes comes state skating through to win the Calder after he's found his game statistically? What if that happens? Mind blown. Mind blown. Um, Selkie, I just want to make a note here. I love Mark Stone. If you listen to this podcast, you know I want nothing more than Mark Stone to win the Selkie. Hasn't really earned it yet. The, the, the Knights are a bad defensive team so far. His numbers sort of reflect that. They're they're just not Mark Stone quality numbers quite yet, which is to say that they're better than you know ninety five point nine percent of the league. Um, but he's just not really playing on that elite Mark Stone level yet. So I think it's either Bergeron or Couturier for the Selkie. But that'll change because Stone's great. So there you go. Awards, awards. Oh, wait, Jack Adams, what do you say? Well, we don't say, the broadcasters say, but I think the choice is fairly obvious here. It's always the team that no one expected anything of that somehow makes the playoffs. And if the standings hold, that would be Sir One Ralph Kruger. Mm -hmm. Dave Tippett probably also making some noise in that, too, if the Oilers stay up there. Mm. Although, like I said in the the piece, it would be really (laughs) interesting to see him win only because it would show that it's not just goalies that can carry coaches to the Jack Adams. It's always it's also two forwards that can do the same thing. And two and then, a half. They got three now. They've got three forwards now. Sh- that's true. Shout out to our friends in the New York Islanders community who constantly are complaining about not getting covered and being disrespected and, oh, the power rankings and this nonsense all the time. Look, Barry Trotz is one of the top three coaches in the league this year. It wouldn't surprise me to hit, see him go back to back. I know it's impossible because you can't go back to back on the Jack Adams because you win it once as the big surprise and then you're not a surprise anymore. So you can't win it again like ever, uh, with that team. But, um, he's done a remarkable job with that group and deserves every accolade that comes his way. And I would put him in, in the top three finalists right now for that award. So there you go. Congratulations. Uh, join us next week for more Islanders talk. Um, for at least by my, was that 47 seconds? For another, we'll go 48 seconds next week on Islanders talk. It'd be a huge, huge, huge moment for you guys. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for our guest. All right. Joining us now on the line, Hockey Hall of Famer, Timu Solani, uh, joining myself and Emily Kaplan. Uh, Timu, it's so good to talk to you, man. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is about going back to Winnipeg. I saw that you signing copies of your book, uh, Timu Solani, My Life, uh, which has been translated into English now for fans back in Winnipeg. What does that city mean to you? What does it mean to you to see uh, kids that are, you know, just growing up wearing your jersey and coming up and trying to meet you? Well, first of all, I've always uh, told everybody how proud I, I am that I started my career there. Spent uh, four great years there, and uh, it, it's just uh, amazing how friendly and uh, how great people we have there. And uh, the whole Providence is friendly Manitoba for a reason. The people are so nice, and obviously the hockey is so big thing there. And, uh, and I always tell that if you're a hockey player and, and you treat people well, you're going to be like a king there. And uh, that's how I felt there. And and going going back there, it's overwhelming the way how the people have treated me and how excited that they are to see me. It's a it's a big thing for me. And um, and even now, uh, Sunday when I went there, you know, I, I signed six hours autograph nonstop, and wow. it just shows how, how much those guys appreciate that. Is your hand sore? <laughs> oh yeah, hand is <laughs> hand is very sore. <laughs> Timu, I was at your Hall of Fame induction, and the entire weekend felt like a love letter to the bromance between you and Paul Correa. 
I'm curious, looking back on it now, what was it like being inducted alongside him? And, you know, what was it like seeing him come back into the spotlight after being away for it for so long? Yeah, first of all, it, it's just so much uh, uh, pride and so much happiness to get inducted to the Hall of Fame. And, and obviously, getting there uh, with your good body, it's even more special. And uh, like you said, Paul was uh, living inside the bubble for a long time. He didn't want to come out in the hockey world when... And now he's like a normal, normal, normal guy again. You know, I'm so happy for him. And uh, obviously, all the success will be had together. And uh, and how much uh, we appreciate each other's career. And, and now getting inducted at the same time, it was just like a dream come true for us. And what a great weekend it was. And uh, it's something that we're gonna remember for the rest of our lives. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're such an interesting guy because playing 21 years, like you did, you played through several different eras in the NHL, including the, the trap years when it, everybody was trapping and it didn't matter to you because you were still scoring 48 goals. When you look at today's NHL and you think back to yourself when you were 25, 26 years old, like, do you just start drooling? Like, did, it, how many goals does Team Mussolini score in today's NHL with no obstruction <laughs> and no nothing? <laughs> it's a, that's a hard question, but I think our uh, playing style would fit perfectly today's hockey that's how uh, we were really built on it uh, speed and skill and skating and everything and that's why it's so much fun to watch the hockey right now with the new rules of this no grabbing and holding and if you can't skate these days you can't play hockey so uh, uh, i really enjoy to watch the hockey now and every team uh, has so many great players to watch and you know so uh, it's hard to say how many goals it all, all depends on who you who i could play with and and uh, uh, so, but I, I would know for sure that I would score a lot of goals, but not 76, that's for sure. <laughs> in your time in the league, who is a player, either someone you played with or played against, that you feel is just really underrated, that doesn't get enough love these days for how good they were? You mean the time when I played? Yes. Or, or yeah. So... You know, I think there's a couple, like, I, I think my Winnipeg era, I think Ted Phenomenon was the uh, defenseman that, you know, he didn't really get uh, enough credit, uh, what, what he did on the ice. And, uh, and then I think my Anaheim times, uh, uh Steve Ruchin, he was our, me and Paul's, uh, center and he was a full package for everything, but we stole the attention all the time and all the glamour. So, <laughs> but uh, at least we appreciated what he was doing every day and, uh, but I think every team has uh, has those guys that don't get enough credit uh, for what they're doing. But uh, but I think the other teammates they know how important they are, and that's pretty much only what really matters. All right, I got I got two questions about something I know you're passionate about, which is cars. How many cars do you own right now, and what is your the pride and joy in your collection? Well, well. I'm smarter now than I used to be. So I used to have 43 cars one time. And uh, luckily, luckily, I have now, like, I think maybe 18 cars, you know. So, uh-huh. but my biggest passion is uh, old muscle cars. That's, uh, oh, yeah. that's something that uh, uh, makes me happy, you know. Like, and uh, I used to uh, love uh, fast uh, sports cars. But uh, I think I, older you get, you start uh, slowing down a little bit. So I think the muscle cars are still... Something with I get kicks. Yeah, now you're looking for that rumble and that power, right? Instead of that that flashy stuff, right? 
Exactly. The power, what you can uh, feel under the hood, you know, it's something that uh, it's awesome. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about, because in your book, you, you, you go into detail about your time uh, racing rally cars um, under the name Teddy Flash, by the way, which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, How'd you come up with that name? Yeah. How did you get Teddy Flash there? You know what? It's uh, actually I, it's tra- translation from Teuka uh, Salama. That's the Finnish name of uh, Teddy Flash, and then I just uh, bring that in English version. So uh, I didn't want the Anaheim to know and, and the Winnipeg to know that I'm, I'm racing cars in the summertime. So I have to come with this uh, this nickname, but uh, it didn't work out very well. After my first race, you know, everybody knew, knew that name. So. <laughs> Now, you go into detail. I mean, if people that remember your career remember there was an accident. There was a whole thing that went on there. There was a whole situation with you not being granted a license to continue racing. And you can read the book to find those details. But my question for you is, do you miss it? Was it a blessing in disguise to have your rally racing career kind of sidelined? Or did you, did you sort of miss it through life to not be able to do that again? You know, I think that that accident really scared me a little bit. That you know, when when you're young, you don't think about any risk. You know, you just go things that uh, you feel good about it, and uh, it was great time. Obviously, I really enjoyed that uh, racing time. But uh, you know, like I said, there's a, there's always the risk and everything, and that's why I haven't really raced that much lately. And uh, I still love it, and I, I, I like to watch, but not. I think it still scares me that to drive. Uh, I used to drive a lot, like. Nurburgring, 24 hours, you know, like it's one lap, it's 21 kilometers, and it's a pretty dangerous racetrack, you know, mm. and uh, and you don't think about that at the time, but now when you look back that, you know, how many risk I, I, I took with the, with the racing, uh, and while I was still playing, you know, it was not, uh, maybe not the smartest thing, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Timo, we're at a time in the NHL where there's, it's a great time for Finnish hockey. There's just so much success with your national program lately, and there's so many great young stars in the league. I'm curious, if you could play with any Finns in the league right now, give me your, like, starting five. Who are your two line mates? Who are your blue liners? And who's in goal? Well, I think Pekka is the guy that I think is a, he's the goalie, and there's a couple of really good young defensemen. Miro Heiskanen is, uh, is one of them. Uh, and then Lundell... Also, Lindell in the Dallas. Also, I think those two are really good play, really good. And then if you look at our forwards, I'm so proud of those young guys like uh, Aho and uh, Line and Barkov and Rantanen. I think the Rantanen is probably the most exciting to play mm. to watch right now with uh, with uh, Nathan McKinnon. You know, I think those those two guys are just fun to watch every night. I think they a little bit remind me me and Paul. You know, like. Uh, what the chemistry they have, and uh, but you know uh, the program what we have in Finland right now, it's, it's doing really, really good job, and uh, we can all be proud of it. I see you're living the dream. You you own the Salani Steak Tavern. You got your own restaurant. How awesome is having your own restaurant? And how much input did you put into the wine list? Why you mean wine list? Not not too much. We just hired the guy who who knows the wine the best, and we just. Uh, <laughs> We did a lot of tasting, though. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I really, I really enjoyed that the whole business, and uh, you know, I obviously traveling twenty plus years in North America, in the best hotels, best restaurants, you know, and so I knew exactly what kind of restaurant I want to have and what kind of menu and what kind of wine. So, it has been fun, uh, fun way to stay a little busy and uh, 
uh, I was more involved when we were building that and and, and choose all the chefs and uh, and all the menus and everything. But now it's just running so smoothly and nice. We are great staff. So now I pretty much just go and uh, drink and, and and eat, you know, and make sure everything works. You know. <laughs> Timo, you're still living in California, correct? Yes. Yeah, no, it's interesting to me because so many of the uh, European players typically go home after their careers. I'm curious, what's it like living in California? Do people recognize you on the street? Depends where I go. I think Anaheim people recognize more, but when if you go to L.A. a little further out, you know, uh, not very often. Uh, so you get that privacy, what uh, you kind of uh, you want. But, uh, you know, I don't think there's uh, anything... Like California, you can you can surf in the morning, you can play golf after uh, afternoon, you can drive drive two hours skiing in the, in the one day. You know, it's just uh, so special. You know, and uh, and especially for myself, I'm a very active guy, and I I don't want to stay still. I wanna I wanna do things. So, and then the sun and you know the weather keeps you happy. So, it's a good place. You know, we give you six months to train. Do you think you can make the NHL for this year? <laughs> no problem. Easily. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Do you even need the six months? It, 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 it won't happen. It, I would need only three months. Okay. Three months. All right. Because, yeah. you know, Seattle's coming into the league in a few years. They're going to need a superstar on that team. Yeah. I'm going to go watch. <laughs> <laughs> Timo Solani, you are the best, man. Thanks for carving out time for us. Everybody go pick up his book. It's called Timo Solani, My Life. It's a translation of a book that was out in Finland. It's good stuff. If you're a big uh, Finnish Flash fan like we are, you're going to learn some stuff about the man himself. And uh, continued success, sir. I, I hope hope to see you on the Jumbotron in Anaheim again where they, uh, they, they okay, did the... Long as I don't eat pop, pop, popcorn at the same time. <laughs> 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 All right, sir. Thanks for your time. Okay, nice, guys. Our thanks to Timo Solani. That was a really fun interview. I cannot wait three months from now when he changes his mind and is in the league. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of leagues and leagues that do exist, leagues that don't exist, leagues that people want to exist, and leagues that people don't want to exist, let's talk women's hockey, Greg. Indeed. It appears as though, according to Elliot Friedman's reporting over the weekend, uh, that the NHL is mulling over some contingency plans for a W NHL. If need be, I think they said six teams maybe to start. Uh, obviously this is not s- something we have. We've heard this before. Like we've heard the NHL maybe mulling over the framework of what a women's league could look like. If in fact the W, uh, NWHL ever went out of business. Um, if it, as long as it's in business, we have to take the NHL at its word that they are not interested in starting their own league. So where are you on this? Um, there's been a lot of reaction in the community about what an NHL women's league could look like, whether or not there should be one, whether or not there should not be one. What's your take on this? All right. Well, I know for a fact that NHL is exploring this. With all due respect to Elliot, he's an incredible reporter, and I'm glad he put it out there, but I feel like this isn't exactly news. We knew this. Gary, Gary right. Bettman has kind of alluded to the fact that they are doing their homework. They, um, It's all about optics for them. They don't want to seem like Big Brother coming in to save the day. They also have been hesitant in the past, and I know this for a fact, about the viability of a league and the profitability of it. And they're like, hey, you know, this is great, but like, we're worried about our business. This isn't our business. Um, but in that time, since they've initially thought that, women's hockey has grown exponentially and you know maybe they're going to reconsider it um for the first time we're starting to hear the women who are boycotting the phwpa start to call out the nhl and start to say hey why don't you 
come and, and, and create a league. I was at the ESPNW Summit in Newport Beach last week, and there was a panel on equal pay. And John Langle, he's the um, he's the counsel for Ballard and Spar, who's been working with the players. He worked with them uh, during their boycott of USA Hockey. He also worked with the women's soccer players. He explicitly called out the NHL and said, "The NBA has the the WNBA has the NBA attached. Uh, that's what we're looking for." We know that history tells us that women's startups leagues are successful when they are attached to an existing men's league. Um, there's many examples in the U.S. There's many examples across Europe. Um, it's because of the infrastructure that they have. It, it's not just the money. It's like, think of it. If you've got a team, let's just use Toronto, for example, they could share trainers. They could share mm-hmm. equipment staff and let alone ice time. So things like that. So yeah, we're starting to see them put a little more public pressure on it, which I think is the more interesting development because it's the first time they're kind of asking for the NHL to step in. And uh, I do think that something is brewing. I, I think, you know, I asked Kendall Coyne about it and, you know, when she thinks it's going to happen or when it could happen. And she's like, I hope it's when I'm still playing. Um, mm. and, and I would hope so, too. What do you think would have to happen for it to be profitable? Because, I mean, that's going to be a real bar to clear for a lot of people who are cynical about a women's professional hockey league in, in, in North America being run by the NHL. I'd love to see just... You know, I, I think that there is an importance to attach the infrastructure of the NHL. I, I think that just makes a ton of financial sense, and I'd love to see them extend their marketing arm. I think of the NWHL All-Star Game that was held last year in Nashville. It was a record uh, crowd for a professional game, for uh, for a women's professional hockey game in uh, the U.S., and they had it right after the Predators game and asked fans to stick around. Like, yeah, maybe that seems tacky. Maybe that seems like a cheap shot, but it's all about exposure. As I, uh, you know, I, that's what I really think it is, is just getting fans in the door. So I think those are really important tenants and just patience as well. I think right away there could be some growing bumps and I'd love just to see them create a sustainable plan that they're committed to sticking to and not just doing this for a year or two and then saying, eh, this is too hard. Let's back off. <laughs> yeah. God, could you imagine that? Um, I think the other thing too is like who runs it is, is something that I think a lot of people have been wondering about when this news was recycled up to the, to the top of the headline stack. Um, nobody wants to see Gary Bettman running it. Nobody, nobody wants to see Gary Bettman running women's league. No one wants to see Bill Daly running women's league. Um, I think there's two choices. I think you either hand it to a, a, a female commissioner and, uh, and run with it or, and this is the more exciting one for me. You kind of do what, and I'm going to speak Greek here for a second, do what all elite wrestling is doing right now, Emily, which is to have the performers basically run the the association. Like the, they're on TNT, they've got a whole thing, the, the top stars in the league are the ones who run the league. And I wonder if, given the agency that these uh, these players have had in, in all facets of their careers, whether it's battling USA hockey or trying to make these independent leagues work or whatever it is, like... How exciting would it be if it was the elite players in North America as the ones to control the product? Like, do you think that could work? Yeah, but I think it's also asking too much of them. Like, part of the issue is that we just put so much burden on our female athletes. We never give them the support that they need. And Mm. to ask them to take on this as a leadership role also, like... Let's just let them give them the resources to train as best they can and perform the best they can, just like we ask our males. I'd love to see Jana Hefford be the commissioner. That would be mm-hmm. my slam dunk easy pick. Um, she's a smart woman. She is well-connected, well-heeled. She's won a league before. She's currently leading these players that are boycotting. I think she would be an avatar for these players, right? She can relate to them and their plight and their struggle and their fight for all of this. And, and she also can be that executive that they need. Um, 
But yeah, you know, I, I do think that the women will have to take a little more agency than maybe the men's do, and, and we're going to see them be more forward-facing. But I don't know if they necessarily need to be running the league. There you go. Once in future, ESPN and Ice Guest. Always. Always welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Obviously, it's a very uncomfortable topic to bring up because there still is an existing women's league. Whenever we start talking about different variations of what comes next, it's sort of at the expense Mm -hmm. of the NWHL, um, which is still thriving as far as we know. And uh, we'll see where it all All leads. Now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at that hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. We point out the uh, hyperbole and the, um, well, all the bad stuff in the hockey media. I, I usually go through a number of synonyms, but I can't really crack the thesaurus right now. All of the bad things in the hockey media. Today, I'm talking about my old friend Larry Brooks. Once told me to f off in the press box. Good, 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 solid citizen. Um, Hall of Famer, by the way. So Larry went on another screed about uh, fighting in hockey. It was based on that horrific AHL fight. Uh, no one wanted to see that kind of uh, horror happen to anybody in a fight. Uh, took the opportunity to hop on the soapbox and talk about fighting and whether we should uh, wait until it gets uh, generationally taken out of the game or just legislated out now. He talks about how he used to be among those fans that liked fighting. In fact, I was from the side balcony when Vic Hatfield and Henri Richard staged their series of bouts in the penalty box at the Old Garden. I was in the blue seats during uh, the myriad bench-clearing brawls in the 1970s. Uh, but it was a different time. Players were smaller. The impact of their punches slightly less damaging. We didn't know about the devastating effect of concussions. It was a time when hockey was equal parts skill and intimidation and a time of visceral hatred between NHL rivals. Yada, yada, yada. Prehistoric times and relative terms of those attendant traits, only one remains. That is fighting. That is truly the sport's shame. I I appreciate Larry's, like, come-to-Jesus stuff with this fighting stuff about concussions. He's, he's true about it. And I I genuinely appreciate the fact that he's been a loud vocal voice on that stuff. I I wish he would stop pretending that he wasn't an advocate for it, though, as late as 2016. When he was calling for the Rangers to insert Dylan McElrath into the lineup to throw a punch or two and call up Tanner Glass from the minor leagues to help intimidate the opponent. I mean, like, I, I it's this weird sort of whitewashing of history where, where Larry was never the guy who was screaming from the rooftops about the Rangers trying to get somebody to protect Marion Gabrick when people took liberties with him. And we could all change. We could all educate. But, I mean, it's three years ago. Like, let's not pretend that you've been this enlightened fellow for all this time when three years ago you're like, Put a guy who can't skate in the lineup so he can punch a guy. That's all I'm saying. I own it. I, I'm a Neanderthal. Join me. Join me in the cave, Larry. We'll, we'll draw something on the walls. All right, now it's time for Puck Headlines. Uh, Dateline St. Louis. Uh-oh. Vladimir Tarasenko is going to miss at least five months due to surgery. And then after those five months, they're going to look at him again. To see if it's going to be like another five months. It won't be, but you know what I'm trying to say. How screwed are the Blues, Emily? I don't know if they're totally screwed, but this is definitely a big roadblock, especially because this is a team that came out with a lot of adrenaline and is still kind of finding their way. There's other guys who have stepped up offensively. Braden Shen has looked good for one. That's just one example. But especially in a division where you've got two teams that are really leading the pack and the Predators and the Avalanche, not great, Bob. (laughs) I'm a little bit concerned about the Blues. I mean, obviously everybody knows that if they go, you know, 
plummeting down the conference standings. Everybody's going to be thinking, all right, I just boomerang back like they did last year. My concern is that as much as we pay attention to Jordan Bennington, as much as we pay attention to Craig Berube and the changes that he made in that lineup, Vladimir Tarasenko had 22 points in 14 games in February for the Blues when they really started to get rolling again. And uh, you take that out, that, that out of the lineup, and that's real hard to replace. So um, a little bit concerned. Also, March and, and April, 14-14 uh, and 14 for Tarasenko. So major major straw that stirred the drink in that uh, Blues rally in the standings. I hope they're okay. I think it would take either Dallas or Winnipeg to really get on, on their horse to make them not okay. Um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that could happen. So there you go. Dateline, healthy scratches. What was the more depressing healthy scratch, Emily? Brent Seabrook or Bobby Ryan? For me, it has to be Brent Seabrook. Bobby Ryan's tenure in Ottawa has seemed like it almost came to an end a couple times, but Brent Seabrook has been defiant uh, about his contract and his no-movement clause, and now we're seeing him you know, in Nashville when he met with reporters on Tuesday morning. He was pissed off. You could hear yeah. it in his voice when you listen to that audio. Um, he believes that he can still contribute. He thinks he can play for another team. It sounds like the first time he was alluding to the possibility of not finishing his career with the Blackhawks. He didn't say that. It just kind of felt like hints of that. So mm-hmm. that, to me, is the uh, more depressing one or the bigger one. And that's the real interesting one, too. Like, I mean, it's it would take something like that where he's like, I feel um, disrespected. I feel like um, I don't belong here to get him to wave his no move. But even if he does it, it's still that contract through 2024, right? Like, ugh, who's taking it? There's only so many assets that the Blackhawks can you know, throw on the back of Brent Seabrook to get him out of town if that's in fact what they want to do. Uh, for me, it's Bobby Ryan. Bobby Ryan gets healthy scratch, and then the Ottawa Senators play like their best game in the last two years against the San Jose Sharks. That's going to be a pretty debilitating feeling. Ian Mendez passed along that Bobby Ryan was asked if he hates his contract as much as Roberto Luongo did in that famous My uh, Contract Sucks speech. Bobby Ryan said, I think my contract is okay. It works for me. He said with a laugh that his tone changed. Everybody's got an agent and they did their job. You can laugh about it all you want. Obviously, everything gets magnified because of it, and I understand that. Have I lived up to it? Yes, at times, to portions of the contract and some other portions of the contract, absolutely not. And I understand that, but I'm not going to say that it sucks. I-, I tend to believe that a lot of the the stuff that we deal with with both of these contracts has to do with the current situations. Obviously, Seabrook is like a clog in the drain right now for the Blackhawks, where if they had that salary space to play with, maybe they're able to do a little bit more to improve the team. Bobby Ryan's contract obviously feels real out of sync with an Ottawa team that is clearly in a rebuild mode right now, and they're kind of stuck with this high-salaried veteran guy that they were thinking about you know, packaging with Eric Carlson to somehow get off their, their, their salary cap. I, I wonder if either of these guys are in a different place if we think differently about these deals. I don't know. In Seabrook's case, maybe not, because that contract is pretty bad. <laughs> uh, Dateline KHL. Emily, a, a favorite of ours, Devontae Smith-Pelly, um, who scored seven goals during the Capitals' Stanley Cup winning, winning run in 2018, now a member of the Kunlun Red Star of the Continental Hockey League in Russia. He's in China, but the league's in Russia. Your thoughts on Devontae Smith-Pelly going East, I guess, to Europe? West? There. 
Uh, good for him. I, I love, you know, seeing guys find a new hockey home. And I was disappointed it didn't work out this year for him uh, when he had that PTO in Calgary. But uh, continued success to one of our favorites. Indeed. Dateline San Jose. We mentioned the Sharks. They lost the Ottawa Senators recently. Uh, <laughs> their percentage chance of making the playoffs continues to plummet. As of we as we do this uh, podcast, they're playing Boston tonight. And as of right now, the San Jose Sharks have nine points in 12 games, a minus 12 goal differential, which is the worst in the conference for anybody outside of the LA Kings. It's not looking good. Are you worried that the San Jose Sharks yeah, are not going to be playoff bound? Yeah, I am worried, but two things that can happen. One, we talk about who's going to be this year as St. Louis Blues. This team is literally primed to be that team. They've got all the makings of it. It's that veteran roster that should be poised to win right now. It is totally underperformed to begin the season. And two, can they just go out and get a goaltender and fix all these problems? Like, this is a team that just needs to make a trade, get a new goaltender, cut ties with Martin Jones. Dell has slightly been better, but you need someone back there. Yeah, and I, you know, there's there's a theory that somebody put out, I forget who it was, like the idea that wouldn't shouldn't John Jacob be hearing some like pitches for Auntie Ranta at this point, based on how well Darcy Kemper's played? Like, don't you think that mm. he could pull a a first round pick from the Sharks or the Devils if it meant like shoring up their goaltending position? Interesting. Can they afford him? What's his cap hit? Um, the Sharks case probably not. <laughs> the, I mean, really, the, the issue with the Sharks is that they have a goalie that 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 sucks who makes a lot of money and is signed for multiple seasons, and they can't get rid of him. So that's really the issue there. But I agree with you, man. It's team save percentage being what it is. It's it's not. It's like one step forward for the Sharks and then two step back, two steps back when they see a puck fly by Aaron Dell or Martin Jones in every game. That's the way it, it just seems like it's playing out. Uh, finally, Dateline Bob. Speaking of goalies, statistically, Sergei Bobrovsky continues to be one of the worst goalies in the league. His first month with this big contract not working out the way we wanted to. Is it panic time or are we going to look back at this as a bumpy beginning for what turns out to be a good year for Bob? I'm hoping it's the bumping, bumpy, wow, bumping beginning. Uh, the bumping end to the bumpy beginning. Uh, I, I want it to work out for him. I, I think that it just felt so unsavory with the way that it ended in Columbus. And this is really a guy that is a very good goaltender and has probably gotten more slack than he needs to. So uh, I'm hoping it works out. I, as you can see, I'm, I'm using all these aspirational words. I'm not confident it's going to work out. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons why it could work out is that the team in front of him it seems to be steadily improving. Um, I was really impressed with the Panthers on this last road trip uh, until that debacle in Vancouver, uh, picking up points here and there, picking up wins here and there, really kind of stabilizing a bit under Joel Quenville in his first month as coach. Um, that said, a minus 9.88 goals saved above average at, 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 in all uh, situations for Sergei Bobrovsky, not real, really where you want your franchise goalie to be. So hopefully it does turn around. All right, now it's time for the rant line. Yeah, I'm the one Florida Panthers fan, and I just wanted to call in and get pretty upset about uh, a few things. First off, you know, our noise level at game. We're off to the best start since 1999. Got to get it going. But second off, last year I took a sign to the game for the Boston Bruins game, and it said, at least we don't live in Boston. 
And all the Boston fans were happy about it. They thought it was funny. It makes sense. Miami's better than Boston in December. But second off, all the Panthers fans got mad at me. He explained it. Why would that be an offensive sign? It's too much fun. Anyway, I'm upset about it. Panthers, we're finally going to get it going. Uh, I'm loving the way that Hughie's playing. But anyway, we need to get louder. I agree with you. Frustrating. Frustrating. Want to get that? Want, want to get BB and T Center going? Anyway, have a great one. Well, I mean, as far as the sign goes, I mean, everybody appreciates art differently. As far as the noise goes, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like uh, a few few extra thousand fans would probably help to that end per game. And that's a real issue there. But I will say this: like, I remember. I've covered the Panthers for a very long time, and I remember the debacle years of like allowing anybody with a valid Florida driver's license to get into the game on a ticket. That was an actual. That was you were covering football at that time, I think. This was an actual thing the Panthers did, where if like you had a f- valid Florida's driver driver's license, you can get a ticket to the game. Like, what do you like, mean, like, just for free? Yeah. Oh. I mean, like, like a lot of I think you can only do it once. I think they like chronicle it, so you can't like abuse that privilege. But that was it. Like, if you have a valid Florida driver's license, I like that in the sense of like, okay, hockey is the best live game experience. Let's add exposure to people who might not be willing to purchase it at first. Like, right? That seems to me like I see the thinking behind it. Sure. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I think listen, they've they've they're in a playoff spot right now. Q's got them playing well. They're going to be fine, but again, I just hope that a few more people come to the games to realize it. And and it'd be also good if it was Panthers fans that came to the game and not like fans to come see their team come through town, which is always really annoying. Mm, like all those so Boston anyways. fans that got pissed off at your sign. That's right. Um, all right, that's ESPN and Ice for this week. Our thanks to Team Solani. Our thanks to um, uh, uh, Triumph Publishing. The listeners. Yeah, for uh, having Timo. Thanks to the listeners. Thanks to everybody. Uh, I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can find my stuff on uh, ESPN.com. You can find me at Wyshynski on Twitter. You can listen to my other uh, much more profanity-laden podcast, Puck Soup, as well. And uh, that's me. When am I getting to go on that show? Because I like to curse a lot. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I think that you can definitely come on whenever you'd like. <laughs> You just let me know the rainy day. You get a lot of Emily Kaplan time. No, it's it's not so. Oh, oh oh no! Listen, there is only one rainy to get rainy day guest, and that's Sean, that's Sean Leahy. Okay, if you hear Sean Leahy on Puck Soup, it's because uh, several people uh, died or canceled, and I had to call Leahy to come on. You you would be someone who would drive listeners, so you are by no means a rainy day addition. Um, but of course, and I've heard you curse, and you're an artist, so of course, of course, we'll have you on Puck Soup in, in due time. Merci beaucoup. Emily Kaplan, you can find my work on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan on ESPN.com. And guys, thanks for listening. Uh, We've got to figure out what's going to go on next week because Greg is going on a little vacation. A little jaunt across the seas. Um, It should be fun. I can't tell you where I'm going. I will tell you that I'll be eating a lot of raw fish. Wink, wink. So jealous. Nudge, nudge. Um, But yeah, we'll figure it out next week and then uh, we'll let you all, all know on Twitter and such. And uh, thanks for listening. Again, iTunes, if you dig the show, five stars across the board and reviews. Much appreciated on that score. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 
has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.